the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show and happy December 7th, 2020. For those who don't see America as a house divided right now, you only need to look to the U.S. Senate race in Georgia. If you missed the debate last night between Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock, I do urge you to watch it. And the softball questions Reverend Warnock took from the moderators, the media. The charges were substantial from Kelly Loeffler. The the moderators made up of Georgia's legacy media were not substantial. No follow-ups, no effort to pin down Reverend Warnock at all about his leftist statements and sermons or background labeled socialist and communist by Senator Leffler. There was a day in this country those charges would have made national headlines, accusing a candidate for the U.S. Senate being a communist, especially in a nationally attended to race. The headlines are not there today. It's all very ho-hum, as if common and expected. Nothing to see here, nothing different. It's almost as if to say sotto voce, yeah, well, that's the Democratic Party. This has been a long time coming, but we may start at the top. Barack Obama today is now defending Reverend Jeremiah Wright, saying his GD America sermon was taken out of context. In 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president, he gave a famous and big speech on that very same sermon of Reverend Wright's in order to denounce it. All of that was evidently a shell game. In 2008, Obama said he'd never heard Reverend Wright talk like that. Today, he's defending it. And yet, even in 2008, Barack Obama was lying. The year prior, in 2007, when Barack Obama was going to announce his presidential run, he actually disinvited Jeremiah Wright from attending the event, telling him, quote, you can get kind of rough in the sermon, so what we've decided is that it's best for you not to be out there in public, close quote. Obama knew in 07. He wasn't surprised in 08. He knew of Wright's radicalism, and then media knew Obama knew. Just as the media knew of Barack Obama meeting with Louis Farrakhan in 2005, his first year in the U.S. Senate, when the Congressional Black Caucus brought Farrakhan in to speak with them. Mr. Obama took a picture with Farrakhan, and the media suppressed it. Mr. Obama was fawning, saying, quote, he's much better looking than me, japing around with Mr. Farrakhan and the group in the room. Now Barack Obama is praising Mr. Wright again, and so, too, is Raphael Warnock in Georgia who has defended him for years. This comes to us especially raw when we think about leaders and would-be leaders who defend the idea that God should damn America and that when we were attacked on 9-11, we deserved it. Chickens coming home to roost. Same phrase Malcolm X used when John Kennedy was assassinated. It comes to us especially raw when we contemplate today's date from 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. Did we have that coming too, perhaps? Did we deserve that? Was God damning us 79 years ago when we were in a much less progressive country, when living up to the Declaration of Independence and Constitution was 
much farther down the ladder than it would be in 1963 or today? Franklin Roosevelt would never consider such a thought. It simply would not occur to him any more than it would his pastor or anyone else outside of Tokyo, perhaps Berlin. From George Washington to Abraham Lincoln to Franklin Roosevelt to John Kennedy to Ronald Reagan, until now, every president invoked God to bless or save our people and our country, either in war, especially before a battle, or in peace. I think especially of Franklin Roosevelt's speech right after Pearl Harbor. It didn't take President Roosevelt a day to put it together. He delivered it to Congress on December 8th. And it didn't take much for FDR, for it was a short speech. And it didn't need to be long. Speeches speaking to common sense and wisdom never have to be that complicated. That's the job of pseudo-sophisticates in the intellectual class, for it takes effort to make common sense complicated or inverted. Here's what FDR said that day. Quote, the facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. People of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications of the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. Never forget. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at that fact that our people, our territory, our interests are all in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. Close quote. FDR said our might was not damnable, but righteous. And he didn't ask God to damn us. He said we will triumph militarily, so help us, God. That's the right notion. That's the American sense of things. But it wasn't the Berlin or Tokyo sense of things. It was the American sense of things. Just as God damning us in 2001 and years subsequent wasn't the American sense of things. That was the Kabul, Mecca, Tehran, Ramallah sense of things. Of a sudden and at long last, in Atlanta, Georgia, it seems to be okay for it to be foisted on us as the American sense of things, perhaps again or for the second time. That's what rubs so raw when preachers, men of cloth, men of God, invoke him to damn us in our country. It's not just theologically problematic, it's quite simply un-American. And we shouldn't shrink from saying it. You know, it strikes me, Democrats already elected, particularly in the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate, from Nancy Pelosi to Chuck Schumer, they tell us things, policies, you name it, are un-American all the time. Existential threats to our country and our Constitution. But they miss the speck for the plank when people in their party seek to join their ranks of leadership, literally speaking, anti-American and un-American bile. I don't know why this is so hard, but I think I used to know. I used to think racial minority status provided a certain form of immunity. That is, nobody was ever so hard on Louis Farrakhan, for example, as they were David Duke, though they represented and spoke with the same vile and noxiousness. But the way Bernie Sanders has been coddled, respected, given air, convinced me there's no need of a racial immunity from criticism. 
anymore. White or black, it doesn't matter. If you praise communists and communism, be it Fidel Castro or the Soviet Union, it doesn't matter anymore. It used to. It just doesn't now. Give the universities 30 years and they will manufacture a culture of communism that is respectable, if not nearly dominant, in our thinking. If that's too strong, consider what graduating millions of students a year, steeped in a sociology of blame America first philosophy, will lead to. And if the thinking from our journalists and political class is insouciant and impassive about communism in America and American political leaders touting socialism, that's why. 30 years of graduates in this stuff. What's interesting is all these schools used to have trustees who would have nothing to do with that sort of crap thinking. If they were not World War II veterans, they were captains of industry and businessmen and businesswomen who believed in capitalism, democracy. But they didn't care about curriculum or what the faculty were doing. Describing how all this changed in the 1960s in Claremont, California, Professor Jaffa wrote of his board of trustees, quote, all of these trustees were as tough as nails over their brandy and cigars after their comfortable banquets. Apparently, however, it was not Churchill's brandy that they drank nor his cigars that they smoked. Since they themselves were far from the bombs and the fires and the threats, it's hard to comprehend their detachment and pusillanimity. They could have made a difference, but they would not do so, close quote. So here we are today, and we are all closer to the fires and threats, except they are fires but not threats. They are just oh-so-common political options in the normal or now normalized political span of things ideological. I guess I think about this all a little differently or emotionally, thinking about how my dad fought in World War II, and my mom's birthday was yesterday, and she recalled that nobody showed up for her eighth birthday party because of what happened on December 7th, 1941. We knew better who we were then, whether there was sadness in my mom's case or heroism and duty in my dad's, or just a better understanding of who we were. As Churchill himself wrote in his memoirs on World War II, he wrote this in the Grand Alliance, quote, I could not foretell the course of events. I do not pretend to have measured accurately the martial might of Japan. But now at this very moment of Pearl Harbor, I knew the United States was in the war, up to the neck and into the death. So he had won after all, after Dunkirk, after the fall of France, after the horrible episode of Iran, after the threat of invasion, when Apart from the air and the Navy, we were an almost unarmed people. After the deadly struggle of the U-boat war, the first battle of Atlantic gained by a hand's breadth. After 17 months of lonely fighting and 19 months of my responsibility and dire stress, we had won the war. England would live. Britain would live. The Commonwealth of Nations and the Empire would live. How long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at this moment care. Once again in our long island history, we should emerge, however mauled or mutilated, safe and victorious. We should not be wiped out. Our history would not come to an end. We might not even have to die as individuals. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder. All the rest was merely the proper application of overwhelming force. The British Empire, the Soviet Union, and now the United States bound together with every scrap of their life and strength were, according to my lights, twice or even thrice the force of their antagonists. No doubt it would take a long time. I, ex I expected terrible forfeits in the East, but all this would be merely a passing phase. 
united. We could do we could subdue everybody else in the world. Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Silly people, and there were many, not only in enemy countries, might discount the force of the United States. Some said they were soft, others that they would never be united. They would fool around at a distance. They would never come to grips. They would never stand bloodletting. Their democracy and system of recurrent elections would paralyze their war effort. It would be just a vague blur on the horizon to friend or foe. Now, we should see the weakness of their numerous but remote, wealthy, and talkative people. And I had studied the American Civil War. I had fought out to the last desperate inch. American blood flowed in my veins. I thought of a remark which Edward Gray had made to me more than 30 years before, that the United States is like a giant boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there's no limit to the power it can generate. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of uh, slept the sleep of the saved and thankful that night. Close quote. Thank you for understanding us, Mr. Churchill. There are silly people, many now, and they live here. I'm Seth Liebson. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. I want to thank John Gabriel for filling in on Friday. Good friend, good man. Noticed a little music mischief uh, between you and him. A little more rush than usual. Was that discussed between the two of you, Bill? No, it doesn't have to be. So it was on your own initiation. So you were you were just like teeming like you couldn't contain yourself without putting more rush music out. You were going to explode. I was jumping at the bit. You just did it on your own volition. Yeah. Interesting. That that let me know in the future or on a going forward basis when things are boiling up inside of you before you explode. Do let me know. I'll find the release valve. I don't want you. Having an accident. That had not occurred to us, dude. Yeah, make sure and let me know. Jim Hoagland, I don't know if he's still alive. I know he at least is retired from the Washington Post. Was a columnist for the Washington Post, wrote something some years ago I've never really forgotten. That knowledge isn't important when the fact of it is first available. It becomes important once it's generally appreciated and no one can say when that is that is to say if a fact is discovered its discovery isn't the key point the key point i mean it's an important point obviously it's the crucial point but the key point is when it's appreciated when people accept it cling on to it embrace it And it feels like something of that going on with this great Angela Marsden video. I don't know how many of you have seen it. I always debate whether to play something everyone else has played um, just by dint of me being in the afternoon. Sometimes I get to play things before they do, depending on when it comes out. But this video came out over the weekend. 
She's a restaurateur in the L.A. County. And uh, she, um, she wearing a mask, was posting a, posted a video talking, showing her outdoor seating, which she's not allowed to operate anymore per the mayor of Los Angeles, Garcetti. And yet some several feet away was about 100 feet away, the county built for a Hollywood production an effective replica of her outdoor dining situs where the Hollywood actors could work and eat. She can't operate with the general public as a business, and the general public can't go there. But if you walk 50 to 100 feet, if you're an employed actor... At NBC, you get to eat in a very similar structure. And she made this video decrying that. If you haven't heard it, you know, I'll just, one of you call her email and I'll, I'll play it. If one of you haven't heard it, Andrew Cuomo ethics, all of you can hear it. What we'll do to let one person hear we'll we'll do anything to let one person hear it. Angela Marsden is her name. And it's taken off like wildfire, over 9 million views. She's been interviewed everywhere, even on NBC. What's interesting about the NBC interview is the reporter didn't state their conflict of interest. You know what the conflict of interest is? NBC should have, but the conflict of interest at NBC was that that outdoor eating spot was for an NBC production. So NBC employees get to eat, just as I guess they get to work at Saturday Night Live. You know how they get a live studio audience at Saturday Night Live, Bill? You you must have wondered, because you can't go to Broadway. You know what they did? They created a rule, an actor's rule, that they pay each audience member $150, and they can be considered an extra. How do you like that? Yeah? Good? Simple, America, one rule for the Greeks and a second one for the Greeks? Not exactly. One rule for the Greeks and one for the Romans. If you're in the right profession, turns out the right profession to be in is a Hollywood or Saturday Night Live actor or or Speaker of the House if you want your hair done or Governor of California if you want to dine out where others can't. Not because they can't afford it, but because they're not allowed to. You get the point. Anyway, this is not a usual video, and hers is not the usual kind of um, response. Remember Shelley Luther, the hairdresser in Texas, who said to the judge, I'm not going to say I'm guilty because my employees need to feed their children. And she was put in jail for opening that should have been the moment. It should have been the Jim Hoagland moment. Looks like this may be. This may prove a tipping point in the lockdown, shutdown, COVID nonsense. There's a lot more I have to say about this. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. It is 3.34. That means it's time for a culture and economy update with John Dombrowski of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. How are you, John? Happy Monday. Happy Monday, December 7th, obviously, right? Yes, mm. obviously mm-hmm. a day that you and I, you know, we hear the date November, uh, excuse me, December 7th. It means something to us, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you, you know that date is burned in your brain, isn't it? It is, and of course I wasn't uh, Right, no, right, right. That's born, the thing. But, you and yeah. I weren't, that's what's interesting. You and I weren't born, and yet it's still burned into our brain. And I would say this, I wonder if we're going to be able to say the same thing about 9-11. You know, for those younger, the younger generation so that wasn't born. That's well. I was going to say. I, I, I was going to say. I wonder if anyone under the age of thirty or forty has the same thing about December seventh. Yeah. You and I do, but your nine eleven question is a very good one mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It has yeah. to do with the way we teach it's sad it to say. history. It's sad to say that we yeah. should never forget that either. Your parents were your parents. <clears throat> were your parents and either of your parents involved in World War Two? Uh, no, my father fortunately uh, had gotten out of the service just prior to that. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. In- oh, interestingly, yes. so he was older then. Yes, I'm yes. with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he would have been of the age that yes. he taught you all about it, as my dad did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. we don't. We're, yeah, we're losing. We have a, what's called a vanishing frame of reference. Let me t- let me let me cast two frames sure. of the sure. economy to you while I'm while while I'm using that phrase. You and I were looking at some interesting statistics earlier today on the recovering economy. Right. And there is a big story to be told there. That uh, we're not hearing. That we're not hearing. Mm-hmm. Do you right. want to say something about it? Because it's a tale of two cities in a way, isn't it? Go, it do, do you want to say something about it? Go sure. ahead. Sure. Well, yeah. I, I just want to start off, too. This has not, nothing to do with what we read about. But um, I had someone, um, a contractor work on my, on my house, and I asked him, I said, now, how, how – um, busy are you is has it slowed down finally for you and he's like no we cannot keep up with it he goes i don't understand it i don't understand where all the money's coming from is what he said they're lining up they'll people are willing to pay anything to get work done on their homes where is the money coming from where are all the uh the challenges that we're that we're hearing about in the media which i know there's people out there hurting said i'm not saying that that's not the case and, and we need to get some help to them but how is the economy uh, so busy. How are people so busy? People working uh, in the trades uh, for construction, and yet there's so many people that are unemployed. We're hearing, and yet in reality, the numbers are looking pretty strong for employment. They are, and it, I'm guessing has to do with bigger employers because I'm reading. That's the tale of two cities. I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. I'm reading that small businesses are taking it in yes. the pants. Mm-hmm. There's a concern I saw in the Wall Street Journal that. Something like four million are small businesses in America are worried about going out of business next year. Now that's there's about thirty million small businesses in America. So what is that about twelve percent? That's not a small thing, right? right? No, it's not a small thing at all. And right. actually, that is really the small business owners uh, keep keep our economy right. going, right? Because They're ninety nine percent of all businesses. Yeah, aren't they? yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, the big business, the big businesses, publicly traded companies right. that can easily, Seth. You know, have a reduction in force uh, of of five thousand, sure. ten thousand, thirty thousand jobs, right. and it's nothing to them because what they're doing is just trying to trim excess costs to keep their profits going. Right. That's like a small business would do. But hey, if I've got one employee, or if it's a sole employer, or just an individual, uh, you know, doing business as ABC Company, mm-hmm. uh, John Dombrowski, uh, who am I going to fire? Who am right. I going to let go? Right. 
No one, right? It's me. So uh, that's the real challenge. And there's definitely, you're right. It's it's there's two different ends of the spectrum when it comes to these large companies and these small business owners out there, the entrepreneurs. You do a lot of retirement. I mean, you you mm-hmm. mostly do retirement security. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a point of unemployment security planning that that you you might want to give Boy, a lecture th- on something. The only thing, well, yeah, I mean, I certainly can try to put yeah. something together. Obviously, the challenge is that it's forcing some people to retire sooner right. than later. Right. That's right. that's the big thing. That's right? the toughie. Yeah. But the, the here's the here's the interesting side of this set is that the stock market has done extremely well right. in its recovery. Mm-hmm. So those people who maybe back in 2000 uh, during the tech bubble or in 2007 and 8 during the financial crisis we had. Uh, it was a total different scenario sure. because the stock market dropped 30, 40, 50% in value. Right. Right. People lost their jobs and it didn't recover for many years. Whereas here we had an immediate recovery. We had that V-shaped recovery. Some are still talking about that maybe the V-shape will not happen, but boy, the numbers. I think it seen... matters which state too, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, it's clearly something that's affecting California mm-hmm. that isn't affecting Arizona in the same way. I well, think shut, I know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Shut down yeah. the state of Arizona yeah. and let's see what right, happens. Right, right. Exactly know? right. We know what not to yeah. do. Right. I mean, I would encourage folks, if you're concerned about your investments, how you're invested, where right. you're allocated, please call me. Please. You know, you can go to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Nice. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finred Sipic and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Let's talk offline uh, later in the week, John, about uh, that idea I just had. Okay. I think there might be something there for us. Sounds great. All right, brother. Talk Thank to you, you soon. Bye bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm tying together a bunch of stuff, so work with me. I'm going to tie it in a bow ultimately. Jordan Schachtel, who's worth reading all the time, writes that one of the most common pro-mask arguments you hear over the course of the past year from quote-unquote public health experts and your average citizen is pretty much a template of this. If only everyone would just wear a mask, we would be able to crush the virus and end the pandemic. In fact, Joe Biden said that for 100 days, if he's going to ask every American to wear a mask when he's inaugurated, according to him, and that that will then end the pandemic. This is a line of reasoning that is espoused by lockdown governors, public health uh, experts, because the problem isn't them. It's you, the citizen, we're told. Wear a mask, peasant. You're the problem. You're the reason the pandemic is still a problem in this country. Deaths up. Why aren't you wearing a mask? Cases up. Wear a mask. Hospitals crowded. The problem is not enough people are wearing masks, they say. Andrew Cuomo tweets, hospitalizations are up. Wear a mask. Gavin Newsom tweets, positivity rate 3.9%, blah, blah, blah. Wear your mask. Phil Murphy, same thing in New Jersey. Um, Fauci, what we need to do is what we've been talking about for some time, but really doubling down on it, uniform wearing of masks. The idea that not enough Americans are wearing a mask is detached wholly from reality. The Delphi Group, Carnegie Mellon University's serious place, has developed an informative, consistently updated mask tracker, mask compliance tracker. It shows that the overwhelming majority of Americans across the nation are wearing masks. 
and in virtually every major population center in the U.S., especially in areas where COVID-19 cases are rising, mass compliance levels are off the charts high, with most major metro areas registering well over 90% compliance. Early on in the pandemic, when the new science told us that masks could stop the virus in its tracks, the CDC and other public health agencies claimed that we could essentially eliminate transmission if a large percentage of the population adopt masking, universal masking. When lockdowns failed to stop the spread, masking was up over 80, masking up at populations over 80% was hyped by the University of uh, California, San Francisco as the best way to flatten the curve, 80% population mask wearing. We will not only flatten the curve, we will be able to significantly reduce the spread of the virus and return to life as normal sooner rather than later, one of those scholars claimed. Well, San Francisco metro area, 97% mask compliance. New York City metro area, 97% mask compliance. D.C. metro area, 97% mask compliance. Dallas, Fort Worth, 94%. Philly, 96%. Chicago, 95%. Miami, 96%. Seattle, 96%. The data demonstrates very clearly that Americans have overwhelmingly exceeded the masking compliance percentages needed to supposedly flatten the curve and reduce the transmission of the virus. The problem, of course, is that the models have not matched reality. Americans are wearing masks, but the hypothesis behind universal masking has not worked to spread the, to stop the spread of COVID-19. Every 95% plus city I just mentioned is screaming is screaming that their cases are through the roof. Americans have adopted the recommendations of the public health service experts, but the public health experts have failed to follow the science, which now shows that masks are useless when it comes to stopping the spread of COVID-19. What else can you deduce? L.A. shuts down restaurant indoor and outdoor dining, indoor and outdoor dining, because they're worried about their case increases. I was watching a Michigan restaurateur saying, I guess good for L.A. We haven't been able to have outdoor eating in Michigan for going on three weeks now, and our cases are rising. At least L.A. can do something. No, they can't. He was being sarcastic. We have been shut down, which is why the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Admiral Girard, just said, show me one study, show me one study where outdoor dining spreads COVID. There isn't. It doesn't exist. You have put Angela Marsden and her colleagues out of business for you not following the science. You not following the science. And when you, Garcetti or Newsom, go and do things you tell people they can't do, other people they can't do, it's not the hypocrisy. It's that we're on to you. It's that we know you don't believe it either. When you say you feel for Miss Marsden, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to reach into the rainy day fund and bail her out? Do you know who got bailed out? 
I'll tell you who got bailed out. It's going to blow you away. You ready? Ilan Omar's husband, political consultant, he got bailed out. Tim Minette has just revealed, received $635,000 in coronavirus bailout funding. $635,000. Ilan Omar's political consultant husband. I know her campaign paid his firm seven figures. When we're bailing out Congress people's families and we can't help the Angela Marstons of the world, and when we're bailing out Hollywood by giving them grants and reprieves to operate, when small business owners, which constitute 99% of all businesses, are being told in places like California they can't hire. I understand what John Dabrowski was saying. I get why here in Arizona contracting and construction goes forward. I get it. I get it. You know why? People are leaving there for here. They are leaving there for here. People here, people here who don't agree with this take, who I would say are not following the science, frankly, don't care, don't, don't, don't like my take and are not, are thus not following the science because I don't know what more I can say statistically or scientifically to prove my point. Do you ever consider moving to California? If that's what you want, if you want to live in a city where the mayor has put out an order banning walking, which he did last week, did you know that in L.A. County? You did? If you want that, you can have that. What you will watch is the cases rise just as fast there as anywhere else, regardless of the restrictions on freedom and commerce that you impose. Because you know why? And I think I heard Angela Marsden say this, too. We were all told the cases were going to rise in the winter. We were all told this. Where was the prep work? Where were the ships? Where were the unused hospitals? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Stephen is in Scottsdale. Hey, Stephen. Hi. Hey there. Um, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Hey, you know, I, I started thinking about this the other day, about those that recover from COVID-19. What are their outcomes like? So I was wondering if I could do some research, and I wasn't too lucky going on the CDC website, but what I'm what I'm getting at, if there is a 99% plus chance of recovery, then what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of long-term effects that are very debilitating, or are, or are there no long-term effects? And if there are no long-term effects, again, it even raises the question what we are afraid of is even at an even higher level. You follow me on that? Totally. Totally. So I was wondering if the esteemed doctor, Judy Jasser, if he could 
um, weigh in on sure. something like it's this. It's probably time to have him back on. Yeah, I'll bring him on at the end of the week if he's available. That's yeah, a good idea. So again, it, I, yeah, it's a good idea. Myself, uh, do you know people who have had COVID? Yes, I do. And what have then their what have their effects been? Virtually nothing. Same, same. Um, I know. Yeah. Mm, probably now a dozen. Nothing. Yeah. Exactly. And you know what? I, I said virtually none. It, it's really none. It, it's, yeah, it's none. It's, none. it's nothing. It's nothing. So if, if the long-term effects are nothing or near nothing, then what in the world are we scared about? It, well, just, <laughs> welcome welcome back to me in March, Stephen, <laughs> yeah. or April, yeah. or May, or June, July, August, September, October, and November. Welcome back to that. I mean, you're – I. Yes, correct. A hundred percent, you're right. I yeah. don't know. I have no clue. This is the most you know, insane the thing side. I have seen. The self-destruction, the self-immolation, the self-panic. This is the most insane public policy and buy-in to public policy. Buy-in, to, right. you know, from the populace that has worked themselves up into a lather. And I think it has to do with the histrionics that were that were that were that were meted out early on about this. You know, I was talking. Thank you for the call, Stephen, and, and the suggestion. I'll I'll take you up on it. I was talking to a dear friend of mine today who's in the media, and he was talking about you know that media research company survey. I was talking about about all those Biden voters that wouldn't have voted for Biden if they had read the stories the media kept from them. We're talking about the power of the media. It is a powerful, much more powerful force than we want to admit. They wanted you scared. They wanted you the world ending as you know it under President Trump. And they got it. They got it. They won. 